Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and we're delighted today to be speaking with Jean-Marc Narbon, Professor of Ancient Philosophy at Université Laval in Quebec, and a man who knows a thing or two about the whole thought world of Plotinus, and especially with regard to how it might intersect with these troublesome Gnostics, these Sethians that everyone is so interested in. John Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of Plotinus in dialogue with the Gnostics, which is something you've written about, a question that a non-specialist might ask is, well, okay, Plotinus, we know who he is. He's a philosopher, third-century philosopher in a Platonist school. Why would we even think he's in dialogue with Gnostics, who are not philosophers. And uh, what's going on here? Protinus wrote one treatise, the treatise 33, hmm. uh, where he, uh, he tries to answer to the Gnostic directly. So there's no doubt. And Porphyry is uh, telling us in the VP 16, the Vita Plotini 16, that Protinus wrote one treatise against these people. So just starting from that, we have, a, I mean, like a sort of a objective proof of, the, of this fact. The rest is, is more the result of a construction. And we know, of course, that uh, Protinus uh, uh, was uh, born and raised in, in Egypt. And you, we know that this place there, while well, there were many, Gnostics movements, even though they are difficult to being described. Yeah. And also with the Vita Plotini, Porphyrius he tells us that both himself and Amelius wrote many, many, many treatises against the Gnostics as a request from Plotinus and in answer to them. So there's no objective doubt about that. Right. Okay. And since we have this, let's say, nutshell, the, this treatise 33, we can from this one extend both in the previous treatises and, and the one uh, uh, who will follow what doctrine we find that is exactly at stake in 33 and is already, I mean, exemplified and discussed in, in the previous treatises. And because of that, we can extend the discussions with the Gnostics almost right from the beginning down to the end. So, there, yeah, there's no doubt that he wrote the famous Ennead 2.9 against the Gnostics, so-called. Yeah. There's no doubt from Porphyry that we even have some texts named, like... Zostrianos, which we know, which is found in Nag Hammadi. So th there's very exactly. strong connections here. We know these texts were circulating. As Zeke Mazur points out, everyone kind of assumed for a long time that there were these Gnostic students within Plotinus's seminar. But what Porphyry actually tells us is just that there's texts circulating, not yeah. that the students are sort of infiltrators. <laughs> yeah, it's unclear. It's unclear. You know, we, we may guess that there were Gnostics around some are not necessarily in the classroom, and I think Zeke Mazur was right, you know, 
uh, on that point. Uh, but then again, why is it that Plutonius tells us that he has difficulty convincing his people to stay with him? If not, because around somewhere, somehow, there are other people, other influences, and the students are more or less in contact with, you know, those trends. But we don't know the detail, but, you know, more or less, that's the picture. Hmm. So we, your work, um, just to situate what you're doing with Plotinus within a larger kind of movement within scholarship, your work along with the work of the late Zeke Mazur, and uh, Kevin Corrigan, the late John Turner, and yeah. others seeks to explore Plotinus's philosophy with a view to what we know of philosophic ideas, ideas about, especially about the, the way the universe came to be the way it is that are found yeah. in these Gnostic texts, in the, especially yeah. the Platonizing Sethian treatises, so-called. Yeah. Now, I'd love to talk to you about some specific philosophical points. In your book, Plotinus in Dialogue with the Gnostic, you, you bring, and, oh, sorry, before I get onto that, I should say that in this, I guess, in retrospect, in, you know, 20 years from now, people will look back on and call it a, a scholarly movement toward yeah. Um, yeah. looking at Plotinus in terms of these texts. Yeah. Everyone has a, a slightly different approach, right? Or a very different approach. And your approach, at least as, as revealed in your book, and I'd love to know if there's, there's more that isn't in your book, is um, very much looking at problematic tensions within the Enneads, mm-hmm. especially to do with Plotinus's uh, doctrine of matter, which has always been a problem for interpreters, um, yeah. and his doctrine of the undescended self, which is yeah. also very, very difficult. It was Well, it was a problem for interpreters from Porphyry onwards, you might say. Um, yeah. So I'd love to talk to you about these two things and how you feel that understanding Plotinus as being in dialogue with Gnostics helps us understand what's going on there, helps us actually eliminate some tensions from the Enneads, from our reading yeah. of the Enneads. Yeah. Okay. Let's start with the theory of the undescended soul, uh, which is very typical of Plotinus and which is very strongly criticized, as you know, by Proclus and almost everyone afterwards. So it's very uh, uh, idiosyncratic to Plotinus, this theory. And what does he tell us? He tells us that our soul is always, in a way, in contact with the intellect and even in some way also with the one. And because of that, you know, there was Breillet in the... 1930s or something, he said in his book, uh, La Philosophie de Plotin, he says, uh, uh, for Plotinus, you don't have to save the souls. They are already saved, in a way. Why? Because of this contact that we cannot lose with uh, the higher principles. And in this, uh, that's in Treatise 6, 416, Plotinus says, if I have to say what I think about that against the opinion of the others. And who are those others who apparently had a different view on that? We have no idea. We have no idea exactly people like Plutarch or Numenius or whoever who wrote about this topic. And because of that, 
I, I would say the more probable answer is that he has already in mind some Gnostic theory where some souls have the power to go back, and those are the pneumatics, I mean, the, the elected, as, as we know, and others not. So there are different sort of uh, souls. Uh, some of them are very lucky and the other one not. And what does he say in 33? He says, all the souls are sisters. And you, the agnostic, you have no right to say that you're going to be saved and not the others. And then when you realize that, you go back to the 26. What does he say there? And that's exactly what he says. He says, the souls are all in contact with the one and all can potentially go back to, to the principles. And, and then you have, you know, like a very logical connection between uh, some uh, gnostic theory and how he reacts against it. See? So, so it's all very logical. I, I mean, the, the relations I, I try to, um, to discover and explain are very much objective. They are there. You know, I'm not creating them. Mm. And also, there's a, another point. You know, in, in the treaties too, there's the appearance of one word, which is homo usios. And the homo usios theory, we know, we know that this word comes from the Gnostic literature. Well, we know from, that it's it's very important to Christianity across the board, especially when yeah. the creed comes in. But later on, yeah, later on, but it is originally from the Gnostic literature, and when he uses it, uh, Prudanus, it is to say that we have some syngeneia, which is like uh, I would say, uh, uh, parenté, uh, common uh, ancestry, common ancestry. Yes, exactly. We have a. Uh, some sort of uh, parenthood relation with the source, okay? La Sungenia. And we have Sungenia and we are homo usios yeah. to the divine, which so, means consubstantiality with, with them. It's a very difficult concept because we must determine what is the exact sense of this word in Protinus at this place. Which is, a, which is a meaning that is before the Council of Nice and all that, you know, the Christians' utilizations of it. But still, there again, you have a hint of this contaminations of the Gnostic conceptuality and concepts right into Plotinus. And it's very interesting that when he criticized the Gnostics um, uh, officially in 33, and then later on, he never comes again using this word, homo usian, as if it's their word. Hmm. And he doesn't want to confuse his theory with theirs. I find it very illuminating to read Protinus as in a reaction and as in a silent dialogue, I would say, because officially he doesn't dialogue with them. You know, Zeke Mazur told me, made this... Uh, critique or observations uh, to me, you know, about my book. I, I, I think he's right. I think he, he was right. You know, there's there are no open dialogues, but there's a intimate, hidden dialogue with them. And this dialogue is, is very intense because on every point he's, I mean, on so many points he's against them. You know, 
in deteriorate about the temporality of, I mean, the creations of the world, as you know, he, he says, I mean, many times that, that, that this process is without time and, the, and there is no rupture, no corruptions in the process, which is exactly what he sees as an objection to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Treaties 33, when he says that there are only three higher divine level, the one, the intellect, and the soul, three and only three and all the rest is unacceptable. Well, we know, I mean, uh, scientifically that uh, we find exactly the opposite in the Gnostic literature. Yeah. So why would he insist on that if not that, you know, so, so th there are so many arguments th that we can bring along this, you know, uh, in this direction that it's, for me, it is undoubtful that it's the best way to read then is uh, using this material. There are also one other element that I'd like to mention. It's that I have this theory about Plutinus that is the only Greek mystic that we have. All right. Now, can you define what you mean by mystic? Because yeah, this term it. is notoriously difficult. Yeah, that's the, that's the question. I mean by that is that we don't have in Plato or in Plutarch or in whoever, anyone describing to us, oh, not only a soul, but my soul is experiencing an elevation process and is going back to the, you know, to the higher level of the of the soul itself, and then to the intellect, and then to the one, what it experiences, yeah. how it feels. We have no one describing that right down to Plotinus, except in this in, in the Gnostic uh, text. Ah, so that's interesting. So I was wanted to get back to the question of the ascent, for example, in yeah. uh, the Apocryphon of John and his take on that. Because, well, on the one hand, you have Plotinus who's inherited a very strong set of tropes about ascent from Plato, the Phaedrus yeah. myth, yeah. The, the myth of Ur in the Republic, which is a kind of descent, but also kind of an ascent. The And of course, the Anagoge in Diotima's uh, Mysteries in the Symposium. So he's got yeah. all that material. But then he's also got this, potentially, he's got this um, cosmic, hypercosmic ascent to higher realities that's narrated in the Gospel of John, or the secret, the secret uh, book of John, sorry, <laughs> in which you have an account of someone who's been to this sort of apophatic higher reality beyond words. Do you, you think Plotinus is reacting to this in some way? I, I don't know if he's reacting, I mean, typically to this text. But he is describing uh, those ascents through a sort of narration. You can say that in English, a narration. Absolutely, a narrative. Hmm. Yeah, a narrative. And uh, like if he were taking you by hand and say, come with me, I'll tell you step by step what's going on. Nobody did that before. Even Plato, where he says that, yes, the soul can have some sort of, you know, vision and, and all that, but it's very abstract. In Protinus, it's very personal. Mm. And it's personal on one side, but it is also dressed in an argumentative way. 
as opposed to what you find in the Gnostic literature, which is revelations, you know. So it's not the same type of literature. But if you put that aside, the fact that you are describing what happens to someone while he goes up is the same phenomenon in both literature. Only in Protinus, it, it is put in a very, it, it more in, a, in an academic scholarly way that that's that's a huge difference but it's it's the main difference and if you go afterwards in in the neoplatonic literature i mean even with porphyrius or yamlicus or proclus or syrianus whatever whoever nobody again describes such a such a such an experience nobody mm. so in this sense he's the only one you will find uh, this type of description later on in the Christian uh, tradition, but it will take some time, first of all. But you don't have that in Damasius, uh, you don't have that in Progress, and how can you explain that if not because he is in a cultural context where you have those descriptions and you find them mainly or maybe only in uh, Gnostic text, literature, and then you have, the, I think you have the answer as to where it comes from, you know, uh, putting apart, I mean, Protinus sensibility and, you know, so on and so forth. As a, as a kind of devil's advocate to that, and this takes us outside of the text and outside of evidence, but it's also very, very interesting. There's, you know, been a persistent interpretation among people who know Plotinus very well, who very, very deeply Armstrong, Rist, um, many others, John yeah. Dylan, that yeah. Plotinus was a true mystic in another sense, meaning he's a guy who's really had some kind of crazy out of this world experiences, and he's interpreting them through a cultural, very complex cultural tradition, drawing on Plato, drawing on, you know, theoretical ideas, perhaps drawing on ascent narratives found in Hellenistic religious traditions as well. I mean, he, there's the Hermetica there's the Chaldean oracles in the, yeah. in the mix, even though we don't have any evidence he read them. But th this this idea of of traveling to the noetic and experiencing the the deeper levels of reality is in the is in the air. I know people don't like talking about zeitgeist anymore, but it is it is in the air. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people who really have a deep knowledge of Plotinus say, at the end of the day. Although this, I can't prove this, my take on the, the doctrine of the undescended self is he was faced with the fact that he's had this experience of noetic life, the, the better life, as he calls it. And yeah. he has to somehow square that with the fact that he finds himself in a body. And we know he's, you know, puzzled by the fact that he finds himself in a body. So he comes up with this theory to sort of try to create a systematic metaphysical take on uh, metaphysical anthropology, let's say, of how this is possible. What is your take on that? I mean, and th this can be a, a, a responsible scholarly answer or it can be an irresponsible answer. It's up to you. I think I would qualify that as an older answer at a point where we didn't have much more material to judge this phenomenon because we, we are not aware of all the sources, you know, uh, Plotinus uh, had uh, what texts exactly he was reading, even though Porphyrius tells us that he was reading Plato, you know, and 
Aristotle and things like that. The relations of Plotinus with the uh, Chaldean oracle is very, very undefined. If if really he had some, uh, the relations with the Hermetica also is very. You know, we know that in this literature, I mean, in the Hermetica and in the classic literature, you had this idea of being God, of being in contact with God directly, or, or of becoming God. We find those words and descriptions. We find it in the Allogenes. J'étais Dieu, I became God. You don't have that in Plato. That's for sure. Okay. Mm. So it's in it's in the the, the zeitgeist. It's in the air. That's for sure. So what I would say is uh, Armstrong's thesis uh, is not incompatible with what I'm saying. Anyway, mm. you know, you can have both. You can have both something of a personal experience, and on the other hand, a cultural context. Yep. And and a sort of traditions going in this direction and supporting you in this direction. And if not, I mean, I think it's impossible to, and, and even if you say that, you still have to clear out this sentence. Why does he say that he has this opinion against para uh, doxan ton alon? Hmm. Why is he precisely saying that? Who is he referring to? It is an interesting one. It is an yeah. interesting one. Yeah. In a, a context of an author who never claims to be original, except in that one place when he says. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's very strange. Mm. So, so, to me, this theory of the undescended soul is very uh, refined and very and highly defendable. I, I, I'm not in uh, with the opinion of Proclus, you know, that it's it's a bad uh, theory. I, I think both theory, the one of Proclus and all of Proclus, as they have their advantages and, you know, inconveniences, you know, yeah. that their high point and, and low point. But, but I think it's very, you know, and, and because of that, Plotinus is, is in, in a very logical way, can explain why we have the power to get higher and, and, and to get back to the principle, uh, as opposed to Proclus and all the Neopolis who have very much difficulty in explaining that because the direct way is uh, cut off. It's closed. You need theurgy. Yeah. You need to bring yeah. the gods down okay. to you. Exactly. Into the exactly. cosmos. Exactly. Um, this is another reason why we might want to describe, depending on what we mean by mysticism, we might want to describe Plotinus as a mystic and those yeah. later guys as something other than a mystic because they're they're kind of cut off from the divine. Yes. No one, in, no one in a Platonist universe is cut off from the divine, but they're not able to simply blend in with the highest realities yeah, without yeah. kind of fancy rituals. Exactly. Like exactly. exactly. At the beginning of uh, Treatise 648, uh, write the, the first sentences. You have a description, you know, where, where he says, often, I had this experience and I went into myself, leaving the body aside. And then I've experienced something beautiful and it was so nice to be there. And I got in contact with the God and, and I became one with it. And I stayed there for a long while. 
And I, and all of a sudden, I get back to my body, and I wonder how come I went there and I came back. Why did I come back? You know, I was so you know this. All that in a personal tone, and Richard Ardair in the in the thirties, uh, the great uh, specialist of, of Neoplatonism, he says this sentence is unparalleled in Altertum. There are no comparison. You know, you don't have that in Plato. You don't have it in nowhere. And he was right, but at the same time he was wrong. He was right in the philosophical tradition. But he was wrong because you have that in classic text. You know, someone saying, and then I became that, and then I had I received this, and then the light was there, and then I went through the light. You know, of course, in the the other style that we mentioned. Huh? Yeah, no, but that's a that's a really really powerful point you make. When Harder, who's who's more focused on the philosophical tradition, says we see yeah. nothing like this in antique literature, and yeah. you say, yeah, you're right. Oh, hang on a minute. What about the Apocryphon of John? What about, you know, and and I would also say maybe what about a few passages of Philo? But that's another issue altogether. Yeah, but they are very tiny. Yeah. They are Just very little, tiny. Little succulent tidbits. Yeah, maybe a sentence or something. Yeah. But you don't have you don't have a, a narrative as such. Mm. And you don't have that idea of going within and and No. Yeah. No. And and also that that theme of when you get back to the body mm-hmm. of being alienated, being like, this isn't my home, yeah. you know, yeah. which is very much not in Philo. This is very much yes. at late yes. antique and indeed yes. typical of yes. what we call Gnosticism. Yeah. In this sense, Plotinus is unique, really, because he's a sort of poetical metaphysician. Uh, we can read his text as a metaphysical text, but also some sort of poetical meditation. And you find that, especially, let's say, in Treatise 30, about the contemplation. You know, it's a very meditative text. And uh, it's totally different from what you find in progress, because progress, you're on the highway, you know, it's like, uh, it's an an autobahn, you know, Everything is, you know, you're just getting straight ahead and, and you know, he's resolving all difficulties as opposed to Pothanius, who is a very uh, tortured uh, man in a way, you know, his way is very torturé. Mm, uh, winding, errant. Yeah. He, yeah so he's, yeah. instead of being on the Autobahn, he's he's going by the little back lanes and stopping and taking <laughs> in the sights. That's, yeah. that's it. That's it. He's not as systematical. Mm. There's also one point I would very much like to uh, to mention, and it is uh, an enigma. It it is the fact that uh, we know that Plotinus was in Alexandria, we know that he had contact with Ammonius, of which we know just about nothing. Uh, uh, just the fact that Plotinus thought that he was great and you know the real master and so on and so forth, but. Where does Plotinus get this form of scholarism so as to become like a real Platonic professor? This style of philosophy, who is at this time almost the only one to represent it, where did he get that from? See what I mean? Absolutely. Was it in Alexandria? 
You know, because when he criticized agnostic, he says, I mean, your texts are revelation. There are no arguments and you are very much, uh, you never wrote about ethics, you know, and things like that. My question is, who taught in that? We will never know, probably. I guess, but I mean, it's a real question. Absolutely. Because we, we have to make some hypothesis that maybe in Alexandria, there were some uh, little groups of people uh, working in, in a more classical way. I mean, from our point of view, about Plato's text, you know, some Platonic tradition different from the Gnostic that maybe he picked up there and that he wanted to defend, you know, it, this could not come from nothing. I agree. Um, while we're, spe it's a fascinating thing to speculate about. What if, here's a, here's an idea. What if, mm -hmm. you know, the way, the way Porphyry presents Pl Plotinus finding his master, Ammonius, and saying, yeah. Tuton is Detun, like, this is the one I've been yeah. seeking. He does mention before that he'd been going from teacher to teacher, which seems to yeah. have been a, a normal thing to do in the Roman Empire when you're looking to become a philosopher. Maybe during that period of going from teacher to teacher, which Porphyry depicts as a kind of unimportant prelude, maybe he studied philosophy for like eight years, you know, and and learned all the major Stoic... Because, I mean, for example, in, in the Ennead on the categories, this isn't just like Aristotle isn't as good as Plato. This is a detailed, yeah. deeply read critique of Aristotle's uh, work the categories. Yeah. He, he's read his Aristotle. He knows it yeah. really, really well. So he clearly has philosophical education in the school tradition, you know. That's it. So he picks and it up And he somewhere. must have get it somewhere, mm. you know. And my opinion on that is that he was in Alexandria. There were different groups, some of them more of an academic style. And he was very much aware of Gnostic literature also, commenting those texts, but he was more on this side. And then, for some reasons, he left Alexandria, he, he went to Rome, and where he was already awaited somehow, because, you know, he was uh, very quickly uh, all set, you know, somewhere to teach and everything. You know, he comes from a rich Roman family, you know, they were colony in, in, in Egypt. And then he wanted to to defend this sort of philosophical work and exegesis. And, and, and that's what he did. But he was later on cut back by the Gnostic again. Because he says in 33 that he has trouble keeping his student. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a very sad uh, revelation. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, and, and there's also another thing. It's that Porphyrius was there only five, six years with him, huh? 263, 268. And all the quarrels that we find that Porphyrius talked about in the Vita Plotini, quarrel with, with the people from Athens, quarrel with the Gnostics, quarrel with the one who, who were saying that uh, Protanus was a, a plagiar. Plagiarizing Numinius. Hmm. Exactly. Okay. All that comes from and with Porphyrius. Right. I, I mean, before he arrived, everything was very quiet and peaceful. No, really. Hmm. But in all the quarrels, there are, I mean, eight, nine that you can list it, all comes, I mean, with uh, Porphyrius. So he's the one who said, you should answer to the Gnostic. 
You should answer to the people in Athens. You should see by me. And and that's why we have to retreat. All of a sudden, Protinus, he get out of his peaceful, you know, way of of uh, meditating. And he says, that's enough. We're going to answer. Answer. Interesting. Hmm. Can I just ask you to talk a little bit about sort of getting back to the philosophical ascent and stuff? Um, something that's very interesting in your book is, and I should say that, you know, that there's a, a thesis that's very commonly taken up in Platinian scholarship that Plotinus basically has his whole philosophy yeah. like Athena springing from the head of Zeus before he starts writing so that you don't see yeah. any evolution of his thought in his writing. And you say, no, no, that's not true. And one of the key points you bring up in this is an evolution whereby it has to do with the nature of evil. Why is there evil? And in the early treatises, there's the idea that the soul somehow falls. And then later on, he says, no, 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 it's matter. I wonder if you can outline your thinking there and... and your yes. argument. Yes. Uh, f- for one part, there's the argument about the, the evil character of matter. The treatise 1851, uh, as you know, is the, is the more um, dualistic of all the texts that we have from Protinus. Yeah, so 51 being the, just for listeners, being the chronological number, so meaning it's very late in his... Exactly. It's very late. And he says that there are two principles, one of good, of the good, and one of the evil. And those principles are, are like two usiai, two substances, one against another. And the descent of the soul is caused by this evil matter that is trying to get inside the cosmos, trying to attract the souls and to bring them down to matter, and, and so on and so forth. And this treatise, first of all, is it is very difficult to harmonize these treatise with the others, first point. And second, takes a position against the Gnostic, because the Gnostics, they say that partly the soul is responsible for the evil. And uh, Protinus' answer is always to say, no, evil doesn't come from above. It comes from below. And that's very fascinating. And of course, uh, I mean, Protinus' answer to that is very difficult to uh, pinpoint. Mm. Uh, because somehow it's unsolvable. Because if you have, I mean, a total emanation... Uh, but then, how can you have two principles uh, with only one emanation process? How can you, you know, uh, figure that out? And and what he says is, in a way, contradictory. So we don't know how he stands exactly. He wants he wants to distance himself from the Gnostics to say that they are wrong. But on the other side, which answer can he bring? You know. Uh, as as something different. My thesis is that matter is a, a contra principle inside the cosmos, but against the cosmos, as a sort of extraterritorial reality, fighting against the good. And with that, you can say to the agnostic, no, 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 souls are not bad. 
they are bad only when they are influenced by something really bad, which is matter. But all the process is clear. All the emanations is clear right from the top down to the last level. And in this sense, his answer, Protagonist's answer, is very different from Proclus, because for, for Proclus, of course, everything comes from the one, but at the end, there are no evil, because evil is only an accident of an accident of an accident. And Protagonist says, well, if you s say that, at the end, there are no evil. See? So th then again, his positions is was not to be followed by the others. Mm. If you want to have an emanationist cosmos from a pure good yeah. and evil, yeah. you're going to run into trouble. And the Gnostics have a very elegant solution. Something went wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. There was a cosmic catastrophe of some kind, and that explains exactly. the whole thing. So they, exactly. they have an elegant way of dealing with it. But Plotinus yeah. doesn't want to accept that. No, exactly. So, And because of that, where finally does matter, the prime matter comes from, is very difficult to pinpoint. Right. Okay? My, I think that it comes from a, from a sort of alterity right down from the one, like a collateral damage, and is picked up at the end by the soul, encapsulated by the soul. And then you don't have to, you don't, you don't want to hear about that anymore. You know, and Protinus doesn't speak a lot about it. That's what I think. Dennis O'Brien, my friend Dennis O'Brien, he thinks that it's not the case and that it, that it is generated by the soul. But then if you say that, you come back on the track of the Gnostics that he is criticizing hmm. Protinus. So it, it is a problem. There is a further problem, which you don't talk about so much in your book, which is the fact that there's noetic matter in Plotinus. There's a higher matter. And there are noetic bodies. And so that a priori might make you think that just like everything else in our Aesthetos cosmos, this lower matter could just be a, an inferior replica of the higher matter, right? Just like... What? Yeah, that's what I think. That's what you think. I, I think the higher matter is, is the first alterité. Right. Okay. And the second one is a sort of uh, fluxio, not a real emanation, but a, a sort of, let's say, escape. Some part of this alter of this first alterity that stayed up escaped. And this escape was the, the, crea the, the creation or the generation of uh, was matter, in a way. And it, it, it has been afterwards uh, wrapped up in the cosmos. So it's like an accident. It's a necessary accident in the process. Okay, so so I do think that there are some connection, some very weird and hidden connections between the primary alterity difference, yeah. alterity, yeah, yeah. And, and and the second one. Fascinating. Thank you very much for um, expounding that. I wonder. I wonder if I could ask you to close with a few yes. sort of irresponsible questions, questions that are not subject to being proven one way or another, but, yes. I, but these are sometimes the most interesting questions to ask. Please, specialists. please. I sometimes ask myself why Plotinus is so... Um, so he, he has many philosophic opponents. He is against the Epicureans 100%. Yes. He's against many of the doctrines of the Stoics. He's yes. against 
a very select few doctrines of the Aristotelians that he thinks they get completely wrong. Yes. He's never against Plato, even though he occasionally has to rewrite Plato to make Plato fit. Yeah. His, uh, yes. Thing. But it's only in Ennead 2.9, Treatise 33, where he says, these people are idiots, where he, he addresses his contemporaries yeah. and, and gets down and dirty and kind of is contemptuous and sort of has a completely yes. different tone from anywhere else. Yes, yes. So I asked myself, why is he so upset with these people? Now, one obvious reason is a question of style, because one of the things he criticizes them for is like, they don't do philosophy properly. They haven't got the proper decorum. They say bad things about Plato, which is just automatically disqualifies them from polite society. But coming as he does from an Alexandrian milieu, where, as you say, his, his philosophic formation is totally unknown to us almost. Not totally, but we'd like to know a lot Largely. more. Largely, yeah. yeah. Um, why do you think he has such an animus against, let's say, the Abrahamic tradition? These, these Gnostics, this, this Christian thing that's going on. Why is he so incensed by it? I think that uh, one of his problems is that these people around had more success than than him. Hmm. And uh, he says so in 33 that people are attracted by those theories. And it's a very easy to understand why. Because these agnostics and maybe other sects of, of this period, you know, it was easier to get some informations and to to get a way to to have a better life because those were systems with keys, you know, as opposed to Plotinus process, which is a very difficult one. You have to read the Parmenides. See, you have to study logic. You have to study the Greek text and the Stoics and, and all that. Uh, you have to exercise. And, you know, it's a very uh, difficult theoretical path. And those people arrive and they say, well, no, no problem. We have some guys. We can tell you what you do that. And then you do that. Everything is, we have a scale for everything. And you just have to follow us and it will work fine. And this very complicated, you know, uh, procedure with Plotinus, people, they say it's too complicated for, for us. And, and uh, it's too long, too difficult. And, you know, because... Plotinus, he, he's a thinker, you know, he, he's, he's a philosopher, really. The, the other, they are, you know, uh, they sell salvation. Right. And they are good at it. And that's why he despised them. And also because they don't respect the, the Greek literature, because they don't, you know, their, their, their visions of the, of the divine is, is not compatible with what Plato says and, and so on and so forth. But basically, I, I think it's, I, I don't want to use the term jealousy, but I mean, there's a rivalry with them. And uh, he doesn't like the style, but he doesn't like also, you know, that they are attracting. I wrote once that Protinus is the more solely person in antiquity, in the sense that, you know, that at the end, Prophelius left, Amelius also, he was alone, okay? And the Neoplatonic literature after him didn't go on with his theory. Iamblichus is against him. His theory is much closer than from the Gnostics. 
than than it is from Plotinus' philosophy. Mm. You know, Jamblichus he has many level of reality. Yeah. You know, like the Gnostics, he has some codes. You know, he knows how to direct the people so that they will get you know in the upper uh, scale. All that is very compatible with what the Gnostics say, uh, and. And for Syrianus and for Proclus, the real philosopher is not Plotinus, it's Iamblichus. Proclus says so. Huh? He says Plotinus is the not the father, he's the grandfather in his rocking chair, you know, that nobody listens anymore. In a way, I, I'm a bit exaggerating, but I mean, so he's very lonely. It's only with... Uh, it's only with, of course, that he was read by the Arabs and then came back very strongly with Marcel Ficin, Marcellus uh, Ficinus. But if not, I mean, the the more powerful trend in Neoplatonic philosophy is the Yamblican and Proclean one, I yeah. would say. Absolutely. Don't you agree? I, I absolutely agree. And it's interesting, they, of the things that Plotinus attacks the Gnostics for, the kind of incredibly proliferating complexity yeah. of the immaterial realities is one of the main things. He says it's, they're making it too complex. They're just adding yeah. all these extra layers That's and it. stuff. And they are, I mean, no one is more into that than Proclus. Than Proclus, than Iamblichus and yeah. all that. Why, would so, you, so, why settle for one hypostasis when you can have a, a triad with the triads within each bit of the triad? That's it. And, you know. That's it. So, so, so at the end, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he's the loser in a way. He, he didn't win the battle. It's maybe very sad in a way. And of course, much of what he said, you know, was incorporated in the Neoplatonic tradition, but incorporated in a totally different frame. Yeah. Not his frame. His frame was kaput gemacht. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to me. Um, to think about as well. So in the later tradition, in the Nachleben, Plotinus, although he makes an incredibly important imprint on these later thinkers, because they're, they're using Platinian assumptions even when they're attacking Plotinus very often. Yeah, yeah. They're using Platinian readings of Plato even when they're attacking Plotinus yeah. as reading Plato. Yeah. He nevertheless stands out as totally different. And even from Porphyry, I mean, Porphyry is Platinian in some ways and, and not in others. But... I wonder how much he was a freak in terms of what came before him as well. How much he was a freak just at his time, like especially when you think of yes, yes, his contempor contemporary philosophers like Origen, Origen, yeah. the, the the Christian yes. writer, who's also coming from this Alexandrian Platonist milieu, or Clement earlier, who ha who both have a lot of ideas that are very reminiscent of Plotinus, but. Mm -hmm completely different approach to philosophy. They're doing scriptural exegesis. Mm -hmm. They're, um, it, it's just completely different. It's a completely different thought word. I wonder how much Plotinus, with his throwback to that school tradition of philosophy and argumentation, coupled with a deep narrative experiential side to metaphysics, is just a total freak. He's just, there never yeah. was anyone like him before and there was never anyone hit like him afterwards. I don't know, because in a way, yes, but at the same time, nobody comes from nowhere. So there has to be some trend before. There has to be some school, you know, even a small school, even, you know, 
but there there must have been some something that he's uh, develop, developing uh, because it's his style because he likes that and, and all that and i don't think protinus for him the gnostics are some sort of christians but i i don't think he has he never shows any knowledge apart from this critic from the these those gnostics with the christians Mm. This comes with Porphyry. But Plotinus, he only talks about uh, Greek philosophy, Plato and, you know, and uh, uh, the, 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 the pagan world. He, he's not into, he, he doesn't, I don't think he, he saw differently the Gnostics, uh, differently from any other Christians. Because they were, they, they were all then little sect anyway. Mm. So, I think it's Porphyry who is a specialist on on religion. I think he's the one who maybe saw, you know, some uh, larger group of Christian people and among them the Gnostic, you know, and and then he wanted to quarrel with them. Again, because he's always quarreling Porphyry. But Plotinus, I I don't think he's, uh, I think he's away from that. Mm. It's only with the Gnostic because they are close to him, because they get in contact with his students, because they are all around, because they are, they have quite a bit of success around them, that he has to put a stop, a stop to it. Mm. Well, actually, that's probably a perfect place to to put a stop to our interview. <laughs> Jean-Marc Narbonne, thank you so much for speaking to us about Plotinus and dialogue with the Gnostics. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for the for the invitation. Very nice. Thank you.